we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. This is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center. And today we're going to talk about something that seems kind of wonky and narrow, but in fact is a central problem with the way we do immigration. And this is a policy called parole. We've probably mentioned it before on this podcast, but parole in the immigration sense is different from the criminal justice parole. Basically what it means is the president is authorized by Congress in very narrow circumstances to let people into the country who have no right to be here. They don't have a visa. They're inadmissible is the term. But for narrow reasons, like a medical emergency or you have to testify to a trial and there isn't an opportunity to get a visa, or if you're, um, this actually happened, a Russian cosmonaut on the International Space Station and returning on the U.S. Space Shuttle, the space shuttle we used to have, well, he didn't have a visa. He's landing in California. So anyway, people like that, there's a need for parole. But presidents going back quite a ways have abused it and used this narrow authority, basically blow it open. And this is what we're seeing with Biden really more than on a scale that we've never seen before. Biden using it to basically freelance his own immigration policy separate from Congress. And so to talk about the latest iteration of the latest abuse of parole by this administration, we have Art Arthur, Andrew Arthur is the way you'll see his byline, who's a fellow in law and policy here at the center, longtime Hill staffer, immigration judge, INS attorney. So he knows this very well. And he's written several pieces on our website, cis.org, on this parole plan that the administration announced a few weeks ago. So, Art, if you could start basically just with a quick intro to parole. We've talked about it before, but then what's the role of parole in these latest announcements by the administration? Thank you for that, Mark. Just to give the listeners an idea, parole is a concept that dates all the way back to the original Immigration and Nationality Act of 1952. The INA, as we call it, divides aliens up into various different categories. Some of them are present in the United States following a lawful admission, but some of them are seeking admission to the United States as a preliminary matter. In order to be admitted to the United States, you have to have some sort of document that allows you to come here. Generally, that's a visa in the case of most foreign nationals or in the case of nationals of visa waiver countries, a passport from one of those countries that will allow them to enter the United States. Historically, however, we've had groups of people who show up at our front door and they don't have any documents, but they have a compelling reason why they should be allowed to enter the United States, which is why in 1952, Congress 
added the parole authority to Section 212 of the Immigration Act, which are the grounds of excludability then, inadmissibility now. And what that does is it allows DHS to permit a foreign national who is not admissible to the United States to enter this country without being formally admitted. So Congress always anticipated that this was going to be a very limited authority in exceptional circumstances, and you listed the two main ones that Congress had in mind, and that is aliens who need emergency medical treatment and aliens who are coming to the United States in order to offer testimony or to be defendants in criminal trials in this country. However, as you mentioned, many administrations had abused the parole authority to create quasi-crowds of admission outside of the careful limits that Congress had set. We know that President Clinton did that and prior administrations had done that. In order to address those abuses in 1996 in the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act that year, Congress narrowed the scope of the executive branch's parole authority. And as currently written, DHS can only parole aliens, quote, on a case-by-case basis for urgent humanitarian reasons or significant public benefit, close quote. Now, another important thing to note is that in that same 1996 act, Congress mandated that all aliens who were inadmissible to the United States be detained until, and less than until, they were deemed to be admissible from the United States or removed. And that includes aliens who enter the United States illegally. They're supposed to be detained from the moment that they're apprehended until the point at which they are either granted asylum and admitted to the United States or they're removed. And for more than 12 years, various administrations complied with that rule. In December 2009, however, under the Obama administration, then ICE Director John Morton issued what was called the Morton Directive. And the Morton Directive told ICE officers and agents that if they had an alien who was apprehended at the border and who was you know, subject to expedited removal, but who was placed into removal proceedings because they had passed a credible fear screening, that they were to be paroled into the United States. And Morton was very clear in that memo that this parole was sort of different from traditional parole and that it applied only to the terms of his memo. That is to release those individuals into the United States, not to take them out of removal proceedings because they were still removable but to keep them in those removal proceedings, but let them loose from custody. Now, at the time that Morton issued that directive, most states weren't aware, most states didn't have standing to challenge administrative policies like that. That all changed. Challenge in court, you mean? They didn't have standing to sue. Right. They didn't have standing to sue against that. And for what it's worth at the time, most people figured that it wasn't going to be that big a deal. But it actually did become a very big deal. At the time that Morton had issued that directive in December 2009, only about 4 to 5% of all aliens apprehended at the border who were subject to expedited removal claimed credible fear. Within a few years, however, that jumped to 44% 
of all aliens apprehended at the Southwest border. It's important to realize that credible fear standard is low. It's a screening standard for asylum. So the question is whether or not those aliens may be able to prove that they should be granted asylum. And to give you some context, about 83% of all aliens apprehended at the uh, border who were placed into expedited removal and who claimed credible fear were found by an asylum officer or immigration judge to, you know, have a credible fear. But at the end of the day, only about 17% of those migrants during that period were actually granted asylum. It was almost twice as likely, 32.5% of the time, that those individuals would simply abscond from the removal hearings and remain in the United States illegally, and they were ordered removed in absentia. To sum up that part of it, Art, what you're saying is that the claiming that you feared being returned, basically the first step toward asylum, was something that very few people crossing the border illegally claimed until the Obama administration started releasing people who made that kind of claim, even though they were still had hearings to go to they weren't held in detention. They were paroled. They were let go. And that was kind of the spark that created the border crisis we've been dealing with really uh, over the past decade or more. Yeah. No, if I were to point at one thing that spurred the illegal migration that we've seen certainly since 2019, it would be the Morton Memo. Well, the Morton Directive, right? Because the Morton Memo is a different thing. Morton Directive. Yes, indeed. And that's why we saw a huge shift in migrants entering the United States illegally from countries other than Mexico. Most Mexicans don't have valid asylum claims. They don't even try to make asylum claims at the border. They want to be set back so that they can reenter illegally again. But beginning in 2014, we saw a lot of Central Americans, Guatemalans, Hondurans, and Salvadorans almost exclusively show up at the southwest border knowing that if they made a credible fear claim that they were probably going to get released in the United States. And that's why we've seen a huge upturn in the number of nationals who are other than Mexican OTMs coming into the United States. Let me just go back to the rationale for parole, because you had said back in 96, Congress tightened it up because they saw that the president's various presidents were abusing this discretion. And so they said that it could only be granted for urgent humanitarian reasons or significant public benefit. The problem is you can add urgent and significant and however many adjectives you want to if you have an administration that wants to abuse its discretion. Anything can be an urgent humanitarian concern or yield significant public benefit. Congress is even in yanking the leash on parole back in 1996, still just assumed that adjectives would succeed in restricting abuse of parole, and it just obviously hasn't worked out. No, it hasn't worked out, but you know, this really only became a big problem under the Biden administration because the Biden administration has concluded in its own mind that it is a significant public benefit to let illegal migrants who, again, are supposed to be detained under the Immigration and Nationality Act loose if it lacks detention space to hold them and it thinks that there may be 
higher-profile migrants that it wants to apprehend in the future. So Congress has largely democratically controlled Congresses in the last few years, have limited detention space, but the Biden administration wanted to take that one step further. And again, remember, its rationale for expanding its parole authority is that it doesn't have enough detention space. And yet, in the FY 2023 budget request that it filed last year, the Biden administration asked Congress to cut its detention space by about 20%, sort of giving up the game as to what it was doing. So what are the parole elements of this new policy that Biden announced a few weeks ago? So very briefly, let me just talk about what the Biden administration was, was doing and the challenges to it. So the Biden administration's use of parole in this manner has actually been challenged in two separate court cases, one in the Northern District of Texas in a case called Texas versus Biden, and a separate one that's ongoing right now in Florida called Florida versus United States. And in both of those cases, the states are saying the Biden administration is abusing its parole authority by essentially releasing all of these migrants into the United States in violation of the Immigration and Nationality Act. Even while those two cases are ongoing, even while those are salient issues in those cases, on January 5th, the Biden administration turned around and expanded its parole authority even more. The administration has been faced with a massive number of migrants at the southwest border, more than 2.2 million in FY 2022. And among you know the nationals who are coming over the border who aren't from the Northern Triangle and aren't Mexican, about 60% of them were from four countries, Venezuela, Nicaragua, Haiti, and Cuba. So what the Biden administration proposed on January the 5th was to create a brand new parole program for them. Again, at the same time, it's defending its parole policies in two separate court cases. And under this January 5th program, what it is doing it's granting parole to 30,000 nationals of those four countries, Venezuela, Nicaragua, Haiti, and Cuba, per month. I, and that parole is good for two years. They can be back home. They can file their application. They get their parole, and they fly anywhere that they want in the United States. They don't have to show up at the Southwest border. They can fly to Indianapolis or Dubuque if they want to and enter for two years. Now, that's being challenged in a completely different lawsuit. It was just filed a case called Texas versus DHS. Because, of course, there's nothing in the Immigration and Nationality Act, there's nothing in that restrictive parole definition in Section 212D5A of the Immigration and Nationality Act that gives the Biden administration any authority to do this whatsoever. Moreover, Congress deliberately limited the parole authority back in 1996 exactly to address these sorts of abuses that had been happening on a much lower scale in the past. So rather than doing what Congress told it to do back in 1996, the Biden administration is going in a completely different direction, and they're creating what's, in essence, a completely different category of admission that Congress has never ratified. This is basically a separation of powers issue, isn't it? In other words, if Congress is supposed to determine immigration policy, what the executive is doing, specifically the Biden administration is doing, is using this little loophole of parole to arrogate to itself, to usurp the authority to make immigration policy from Congress. And Congress 
so far anyway, is uh, supine and letting him get away with it. Well, yeah. And, you know, it's important to note that Biden's fellow Democrats actually controlled both houses of Congress in the last Congress, which was the 117th Congress, whereas Republicans have taken control in the 118th Congress. But during that 117th Congress, the last two years, the Democrats who were in control largely acceded to whatever Biden wanted to do with that parole power. And it was left up to the states, the ones who were actually going to face the brunt of having to, you know, care for and deal with this massive number of people that the Biden administration is foisting on it, who have been challenging this in court. There are a couple of different ways that the Republicans in the House could address this. And keep in mind, they have a very small five-seat majority in the House. One is to cut off funding for any parole other than that which Congress had in mind when he created parole in 1952 and when it amended it in 1996 and say, you can't spend any money at all to do this. The Biden administration goes ahead and does it. That's a violation of the Anti-Deficiency Act, and that's a really serious issue. Or alternatively, of course, the Republicans could try to pass something that limited the parole authority even further, put even more adjectives on it, or more cleanly delineated, you know, what circumstances are appropriate for parole. But it's unlikely that the Democrats in the Senate are going to pass that, and it's, you know, impossible that the president would sign it. So right now we are in a situation where the Republicans in the House are going to have to use the power of the purse for the state's in federal court are going to have to challenge these policies, or alternatively, this is going to become the new normal. The limits on immigration in the Immigration Nationality Act that Congress has set will be a dead letter. And remember, going back to the 1950s, the Supreme Court has been clear that when it comes to who is allowed to enter the United States, Congress you know, calls the shots. It makes the rules, not the executive branch. This is turning that process on its head and essentially, as you said, ceding to the executive branch all authority over admissions to the United States. In a sense, there's kind of a parallel here to the war-making power because under the Constitution, it specifically says Congress has the sole authority to declare war. The problem is that since December of 1941, that was the last time Congress declared war. And we've had a number of wars in the interim, and Congress has passed some kind of legislation sometimes, but essentially the presidency has taken over the war power almost entirely and basically just told Congress they have to fund it. And so you've got a similar phenomenon potentially here if this abuse of parole isn't nipped in the bud, it's more than a bud at this point, where Congress will still have authority over changing people's formal status to give them green cards, which would lead to citizenship. But everything else surrounding the admission of people coming here on some other status than a green card would basically be uh, up to the president and Congress would no longer have any say on the issue. I mean, this is a constitutional question, not just a question of what's going on with these Nicaraguans at the border. Yes, and you know, that is absolutely correct. We've seen a lot of give and take between the executive and the legislative branch throughout our history. If you go back to the Federalist Papers, Hamilton and Madison envisioned that, you know, Congress would be the six hundred pound gorilla in the room and the 
president would, in essence, be a rubber stamp and simply do whatever Congress told him. But we saw that power in the executive increased throughout the Civil War, and then we saw a reversal directly after the Civil War, where Congress stepped in to take away Andrew Johnson's power as president. But then, of course, there was the slow accretion of that power back to the executive branch through the Roosevelt administration, especially in the Roosevelt administration. The first Roosevelt administration, you mean? In the first Roosevelt administration, and then we saw Congress uh, swing back with the support of the courts thereafter. And then his fourth cousin, Franklin Roosevelt, came in and seized a lot of that power for himself, and Congress sat by idly. So the question is going to be, you know, whether... The administrative power is supreme, and the people's representatives in the houses of Congress are pushed to the side, or whether Congress is going to seek to take back this power. It's, it's kind of interesting. There's a saying that war is the health of the state. In other words, that when there's war, the state grows. And you skipped over Wilson there using World War I as a vehicle for dramatically expanding the power of the federal government. In a sense, immigration is the health of the state, in the sense that the executive is arrogating to itself and getting away with it more and more control over mass immigration. If immigration were a much less significant phenomenon, the executive just wouldn't have those opportunities of usurping the legitimate authority of Congress. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that brings up. A third important point, and that is the third branch, which the Federalist Papers describe as the weakest branch. And one of the things that we've seen, if you've listened to you know, what we've been talking about for the last 23 minutes, the courts are more and more being drawn into these fights between the states and the executive branch over this immigration authority. Congress has failed to act in the last two years. And so the states are having to defend their own interests by going to federal court. Remember that when the individual states joined the Union, when they ratified the Constitution, they gave up their authority to enforce the immigration laws. And back in 2012, in the case of Arizona versus United States, the Supreme Court stepped in and said, yeah, no, states don't have the ability to enforce immigration laws well. That leaves the states defenseless and wholly reliant on the federal government to enforce the laws and enforce the borders. And again, you know, by and large, I don't think that the judiciary under the head of the judiciary, Chief Justice John Roberts, really wants to get involved in these sorts of disputes. But the door's been opened, and increasingly, it's become a reluctant judiciary that's had to make these hard calls. If the Republicans in Congress or Congress as a whole doesn't stand up for its own powers, it's going to be that third branch, the judiciary, that's going to have to defend the rights of the states in the face of what has been a massive wave of illegal immigration under the Biden administration. It's uh, interesting that as Congress cedes authority, the states are kind of stepping in and doing what Congress is supposed to do. But since the states are functionally separate, it can't really be a political fight the way it would be between Congress and a president. It's got to be a judicial fight because the only way the states can resist this abuse of parole is by going to court. It's kind of an interesting dynamic. The last thought I just had, just as sort of a parting thought, is that we have come to casually talk about parole programs. There's this one for the people from these four countries. There were 
parole programs earlier that started under the Obama administration, much smaller. Central American Miners Program, various other initiatives like to let people in from Haiti who were on a green card waiting list, but they would be paroled in so they would wait in the United States. We've come to accept that idea of a parole program as legitimate when, in fact, the words parole and program can't go together. I mean, simply uttering parole program on the part of the government is arguably illegal itself because the whole point is it's supposed to be done on a case-by-case basis. In other words, individual examples and the administrations, successive administrations, have basically through sophistry said, well, you know, we only let them in one at a time, so that's case by case. But there should never be anything that is called a parole program because parole is by definition not supposed to be programmatic. You see what I mean? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, that is a key point. A parole program is a contradiction in terms. Right. And, you know, the Obama administration and more so the Biden administration has used very sympathetic populations of foreign nationals as a way to expand its parole authority. The latest example is probably a bridge too far, but it's going to be dependent upon either Congress or the judiciary to step in and narrow this. The states have, you know, made very good arguments and they're very adversely affected by this huge influx of people. And you and I have talked about this before, but if you want to focus on one reason and one rationale for why the border is in the state that it's in right now is that in a break from every prior presidency, the Biden administration has no intention, let alone a plan, to deter foreign nationals from entering the United States. What the Biden administration has decided to do is to offer asylum to everyone in the world, to all takers, provided they can get to the United States. And that really is the basis of the migrant surge, the humanitarian and national security disaster at the southwest border that we've seen under the Biden administration. And in fact, under this latest program, they don't even have to come to the border anymore. The people from Haiti and Cuba, Nicaragua and Venezuela can apply for parole to be let into the country. They can apply from their home country. And then when they get here, then they can apply for asylum. So there's a Monty Python joke where they uh, interview supposed man on the street and in the city of London. So they're all wearing their bowler hats and everything. And one of them says, I think we should tax all foreigners in Britain. And the next one says, I think we should tax all Britons living abroad. And then the third one is the punchline is, I think we should tax all foreigners living abroad. Well, this is kind of what we're talking about with asylum is that this administration has decided rather than asylum being a sort of grudging exception for people who somehow broke our laws and got here, they're essentially saying asylum is for everybody abroad, everybody in the world. And with this latest parole program for these four countries anyway, they're saying you don't even have to get here and we'll let you in. I mean, it really is a breathtaking expansion of potential immigration and not just numerically yet, although numerically it's significant, but in principle, the president is saying he can extend the right to move to the United States to anyone he wants anywhere in the world in any numbers just because he feels like it. And these lawsuits had better succeed because if they don't, we're in for a world of trouble 
on immigration. Well, thanks for joining me, Art. This was Art Arthur of the Center talking about parole and the central role of parole in creating and perpetuating and potentially even expanding the border disaster we've been seeing. So when there's new developments in these lawsuits that we mentioned to stop the administration from abusing parole, we will have you back to talk about them then. Thanks. Thanks so much. And finally this week, a little bit different story about the border, and that is that in the news, it was reported that an Iranian was caught coming over the border illegally hiding in the trunk of a car. And initially, it was reported that he was on a terrorist watch list. DHS subsequently has disputed that, so it's not clear it was a name confusion or what have you. But it it really doesn't matter whether this person was on a watch list or not. Iranians smuggling across the border in the trunk of a car is bad, whether we knew about this person's name beforehand or not. It's particularly bad, not just because illegal immigration is bad, but Iran is still pledging revenge for our killing of General Soleimani, the head of the uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guards. And it was one of the top terrorist kind of masterminds and organizers in the world. So he had it coming, but the Iranian regime is still vowing some kind of revenge. And there's just no question that one of the ways they will at least have considered whether this is actually part of their plan or not is sneaking people across the border. And so this issue of security on the border isn't just about regular illegal aliens, though it is that. It isn't just about fentanyl and cartels, though it is that, of course. Terrorism from the Middle East hasn't gone away. Just because we haven't had a skyscraper attacked in 20 plus years, which is a good thing, of course, and partly due to enhanced security measures, doesn't mean that this issue has gone away. And that's one reason we will be rolling out next month a database of vetting failures related to security. People who got through various vetting, whether by the State Department or Homeland Security or both, who nonetheless turned out to be either terrorists or war criminals or spies or what have you, basically not to kind of point and laugh and say that the government's incompetent, but rather to point out specific failures and places where fixing problems is necessary. This isn't on our site yet. It's, we're going to be publishing it next month, but something you can check out on our website today, it's up at the top in that slideshow is a video our own Todd Benzman has prepared with the uh, assistance of producer Brian Griffith on La Bestia. This is the freight train from Mexico that a number of years back was in the news because a lot of illegal immigrants from Central America and elsewhere were hopping on this train for a free ride north. People would fall off. It was a serious subject of news and even of government action because we pressured the Mexican government, to do more to keep people from basically hitching a ride on these freight trains. It kind of went away as an issue. I mean, the trains are still there. Mexico is a big train system. But it wasn't really part of the immigration equation for 
a number of years. Well, during the Biden border crisis, the invitation, in effect, that Biden issued to people around the world to illegally immigrate here has made La Bestia, the beast, which is the nickname for the thing, or they sometimes call it the death train because of the horrendous accidents that happen to people very often. That's back in the news. It is a conduit of illegal immigration all over again because of the flow of people coming through Mexico. And Todd has done a uh, short video with some on-the-site footage of what's going on and you know how this should be back in the news and isn't really being reported in the way that it was a few years back. So I recommend that to you. It's not too long. It's five, six minutes, I think, on our website, cis.org. And we encourage you to either comment and rate and review on your podcast platform or just email us at center at cis.org if you have suggestions, questions, complaints, whatever reaction you might have. This is Mark Krikorian signing off, and we hope to have you tune in to next week's episode.